Thanks, guys. And good evening, everyone. Here we are again. Man, it's already Saturday night. It's unbelievable. It goes so quickly. Uh, and so tonight, again, as last night, we're talking about grapes because we're in John 15, and we're talking about the vine and the branches. So I'm thinking we only talk about wine in the evening. These are our happy hour talks, basically, right? Um, but uh, uh, I'm going to read a little bit out of John 15 and then pray, and then, and then we'll begin. So let me just read uh, for us here, John 15. Listen as Jesus is speaking. This is part of essentially his last chat that he had with uh, his disciples, and, and then in the midst of some profound moments of foot washing and other teaching by the Holy Spirit and telling them that he's going to go away and all these things, uh, he, he, he says at the end of chapter 40, get up, let us go from here. And then this is what he says. I'm the vine, the true vine. My father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes so that it might bear more fruit. You're clean because of the word which I've spoken to you. And then this significant uh, phrase for us this evening, abide in me, and I'll abide in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I'm the vine, you're the branches. The one who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Let's just pray together as we gather. Father, thanks for the beauty of the day, the beauty of the fellowship, conversation, creation, food, enjoyment, teaching, worship, all gifts from you. And we just open ourselves up now, Father, and express to you that our desire is not to kind of entrench and hang on to what we have, but with open hands invite you to the ongoing work of transformation in each of our hearts so that we can look more and more and more and more like the person you had in mind when you created us, people overflowing with nothing less than your resurrection life, uniquely displayed through each one of us by virtue of the gifts that you've given to us. So teach us now, Jesus, and give us not only um, the capacity to hear, but the capacity to receive and respond so that we might be shaped by you. We'll thank you for it. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. I'm going to begin this evening by telling you about the uh, most frustrating seminary class that I had when I was a seminary student. This was a class taught by a guy whose name I can't remember, so I'm not going to throw anybody under the bus here, I hope. hope he's not here tonight, but maybe he is. It's okay. It's all good. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, I, I came into seminary, and I'm filled with massive insecurity about who I am and about my abilities, and I'm not sure I'm cut out for this kind of work, but feeling a sense of call. And uh, this class was a, it was a, called a practical theology class, which is really uh, about kind of how to run a church, basically. It was a leadership class. And so this guy, uh, he stood up the first day, and he said, if you don't have leadership skills, you can just forget about being involved in church ministry right away. Because if you're not a good leader, you're going to fail. And then he went on to say, and everyone in the church of which I'm a part, we're all such good leaders that any one of us could run a Fortune 500 company. Now, I got to tell you, I just nearly walked out of the class, not because I was mad at him, but because I was so stinking depressed because uh, I'm like this. If that's the criteria, I'm done. I, because I do not, not only am I not that kind of person, I don't even want to be that kind of person, right? So I'm not motivated along those lines. And uh, I was depressed. Well, I comforted myself by saying, you know what, I have to take this class, but I'm actually in seminary because I want to be a professor, not a pastor. So if pastors need to be leaders, whatever, it's good for them. I'm going to be uh, a professor, and then 
longer story than tonight, but God tricked me and I became a pastor. Uh, when I moved to that island, it was going to be a six-month gig before moving to Alaska to teach at a Bible college. And uh, then the job up there imploded due to some things internally at the school. And uh, so I was hired as an interim pastor to be on that island. And then as soon as this other job imploded, the board met and they, they said, you know, we prayed last night. You're our pastor. We're done with our search. We want you to stay. And I didn't have any other job. So I was like, yeah, cool, I'll stay. And then I began to hate it immediately, right? <laughs> because it no, now it's no longer temporary. There's no light at the end of the tunnel. It's really, really hard. But this is what I learned. Uh, with due respect to that guy, I don't think it's true that you have to have great human qualifications to be a leader in God's stuff that God is doing. Here, and here's why I think that. You know that book, Good to Great? Maybe you've read it. Some of you, some of you have read it, probably by, by uh, Jim Collins. He's a leadership guy. I don't read many leadership books, but that's one of two or three that I have read. And he, uh, Collins, when he talks about companies that have been turned around and moved from you know, the downward trajectory, the upward trajectory, or from mediocre to great. He says every company has the same thing. They have a level five leader, right? And then he talks about what a level five leader is, and there's all these qualities of a level five leader. Well, uh, so I'm, I'm reading that, and then I'm doing a sermon series about the different disciples of Jesus at the same time, and then I'm, it, suddenly the light's going on for me, and I'm like this. None of these guys were level five leaders. They were all disasters, right? Like, uh, remember those guys, the Sons of Thunder? Like, they wanted to solve problems by executing people. That's not a good leadership style, I don't think. <laughs> and then uh, they, they had this uh, penchant or obsession, as many people do in organizations, regarding where they were on the org chart. Do you remember that? Uh, Jesus... Like the night that he's going to be uh, betrayed and executed, he's pouring all this stuff out. Uh, he's telling his disciples, I'm about, you know, we're going to have this meal, but then I'm going to go, we're going to go to this garden, and some soldiers are going to come. They're going to, one of you is going to betray me, and I'm going to be arrested, and I'm going to be taken away and tried, and then I'm going to be executed. And, the, and, the, and Peter and James are like this, yeah, yeah, whatever, yeah. yeah we, hey, Jesus, we have a question. Uh, we want to sit on your right and left hand in the, in the kingdom, Right? Like, that's all they cared about on the night of his execution. These guys are not good leaders. And not only that, but they're not a good team, right? Because they're not aligned. You talk about silos? These guys were, like, living in silos. Because Matthew is a, is a tax collector, and uh, some of the other disciples are zealots, and zealots hate tax collectors, right? So you, so you had... People with all these, all these dysfunctions and all these, all these weaknesses and all these competing interests, and, and they, were, they were fighting to sit at Jesus' left and right, and they, wanted, and they were arguing, remember this? They were arguing about who would be the what? Who would be the greatest? So this is Jesus' team. I mean, the only guy on the list who's a level five leader, like solid, dependable, uh, Fiscally responsible is Judas, and we know what happened to him, right? <laughs> so um, here's the point. When you look at the disciples, it's, at least for me, it fills me with tremendous hope. Why? Because I'm like this. Oh, if you can use the disciples, and you use David, and you used you know, Judah, the, the, the guy we talked about this morning, and Jacob, the guy we talked about this morning. I mean, when I go back and I look at who God uses, I'm like this, I think God maybe can use me too. And then I read 2 Corinthians 3, where the Apostle Paul says this, let's not think of ourselves as regarding anything as coming from ourselves, because our adequacy to fulfill the calling by which we were created, like all of us are created to do something, our adequacy is from God. So I'm not, in my own humanity, apart from the indwelling power of Christ, I'm not, I'm not going to do anything. And this is what Jesus is saying in this, this uh, teaching regarding the vine and the branches. Here's Jesus. Uh, Abide in me and you'll bear fruit. So that's the, the carrot. And then here's the stick. What does he say? Apart from me, you can do nothing. Really? Nothing? Come on. We're here. 
right? We can drive, uh, we, can, we can get a master's degree, we can write code, we can manage a business, we can, we can buy a house, we can go on to TET Ameritrade and you know, close our eyes and pick something, it'll go up. I mean, we're good. Yeah, like, like we've got what it takes. No, we don't. Because here's what Jesus is saying. He's not saying literally you can't do anything. Here's what he's saying. He's saying whatever it is that you're doing, unless your action is infused with nothing less than my resurrection life, then that action will never bear the fruit it's designed to bear. So you can go do stuff. You can write code. You can, you can be married. You can raise kids. You can invest money. But unless any and all of that is infused with the resurrection power of Jesus Christ, you will not bear the fruit that I desire that you bear. In other words, you yourself won't change and other people won't change by virtue of being in proximity to you. So you'll miss the life for you created, the life for which you're created, unless you acknowledge on the front end that you don't have what it takes to do what God is calling you to do. All of us have to acknowledge our brokenness at the very beginning. So what God does is God goes to great lengths by virtue of metaphor to explain this. Number one, we're sheep, he's a shepherd. And if you're in the Q&A, you know the disaster that sheep are, right? Like left to our own devices, we will self-destruct, and I will. I will self-destruct left to my own devices. I, you know, my wife and I, somebody asked this morning, what's the secret of 40 years of you know, happy marriage? And we also say to people, without Christ, I don't think we would have made it. I really don't think we'd still be married. So Christ is a, a, a source of intimacy for us. We're, we're sheep, he's a shepherd. We're prone to self-destruction and fear, he'll protect us. We're, though we're men here this week, we're the bride and Christ is the groom. So we, who are used to being the strong ones and the, and the, and the giving ones, and the providers, vis-a-vis our relationship with Christ, we have to learn how to be the bride. We have to learn how to open ourselves up and receive the life of another in, 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 in humility because unless we receive that life, if the, if the seed of Christ doesn't abide in us, we can't bear fruit. And then, uh, we're a house, but he's the foundation. And so, any of you know, if you have a house without a foundation, you got nothing. And then, the, uh, the metaphor for this evening, we're the vine, he's the branches. In, in all of these, the truth is this. Apart from Christ, we can do things but we, we, it is impossible, not difficult, impossible to live the life for which we're created without the empowerment of Christ, right? But with Christ, we can be bold even though we're sheep, prone to fear. We, we can be intimate even though we're prone as men to run from intimacy because we're learning to be the bride of Christ. Uh, we, we, can, we can endure storms because we have a good foundation and Tonight's point, we can bear fruit like a branch on a very good vine. So this vine metaphor, as I shared last night, <clears throat> terribly significant in Israel's history because good wine was this sign of God's favor. In Ezekiel 15, Isaiah 5, uh, book of Joel, there's a plague uh, and the sign that Israel's under a curse that wakes everybody up is these locusts coming in and destroying the, the vineyards. And I don't know if you know, if you read Joel 1, it's hysterical. Uh, there's five waves of locusts that come in, and they strip every vine clean, not only the fruit on the vine, but all the leaves as well. There's just nothing left. And then it says, uh, and I'm paraphrasing, but this is, the, this is Joel 1, you read it. It says, so everybody mourned. And then it articulates who, who was mourning. Well, who would mourn first? Well, the farmer's mourning. Of course, he's lost a source of income. But priests are mourning too. Why? Because priests who are charged with uh, uh, doing ceremonies that entail and require wine, they don't have any wine. So the priests are mourning. And it says that the, the, uh, the bride and groom are mourning because like the couple in John 2, they have no wine now for their wedding. And then don't you love this? The, the raw honesty of the Bible, it says this, and the drunk was mourning too. For obvious reasons, right? Like, there's, there's, no, there's no joy where there's no wine. And, and, and our culture looks a lot like John 2, no wine. Our culture looks just like that. Lots of factors make it more, like increasingly difficult, just at a practical level, for people to be people of joy and generosity. Consumerism, 
has us seeking a different vine as a culture. Individualism has us looking over ourselves. Nationalism has us isolated and tribal and arguing with each other about, uh, about politics. And so we're becoming increasingly isolated, increasingly fearful, increasingly angry. And then, and then uh, we're dealing with this by buying more stuff and self-medicating. And that self-medication displays in, um, we were just talking about uh, people using more and more drugs just randomly and, and the devastating effects of that, not just, not just opioids and addiction, but across the board. And then commensurate to that is alcohol. And it's not that any alcohol is a problem, it's that addiction is a problem and it's a problem. And, and one drink becomes two, and five o'clock becomes noon, and wine becomes scotch, and pretty soon people are dysfunctional. Yeah, they sing in church, but life is so painful, they got to self-medicate their way through, right? So here we are, bigger houses, more toys than ever before. Like, you can ask me any question right now about anything, and I can give you the answer right now. It's right here. But in spite of all our information, all our material comforts, all our you know, hyper-insulated uh, uh, dwellings in which we find ourselves, we're lonelier than ever, we're more addicted than ever, we have more broken families than ever, we're busier than ever, and we're barren. There is no wine in American culture. Now, if that seems like bad news, it's kind of bad news, but the good news in, embedded in the bad news is this. When we, God's people, begin to function as the fruitful people God created us to be, then we become the presence of wine in a very thirsty world. Does that make sense? So our calling then is to live into that. Well, how do we do that? Well, we need to learn to be rightly connected as uh, the branch to the one true vine, Christ. So that's what we're going to look at this evening with these three observations. Observation number one. Jesus says at the very beginning, not I'm the vine, but what? I'm the true vine. That's what he says. So inherent in that, this is a very simple observation, but there's a, here's what Jesus is saying. Look, there are lots of vines. Now, in the real world, like I grew up in uh, um, Fresno, and so I'm not, I didn't grow up in wine country, but I grew up in raisin country, uh, and it's, so it's still grapes, and I can, I can tell you... Uh, uh, no brand, no real branch in the real world gets to choose the vine to which it's attached. Do you understand what I'm saying? Like the, the, the branch comes from a vine. You could, someone could graft it in, but the vine can't self-graft. Do, do you see? However, that's not true for us. Because Jesus will later say in this passage, Look, if I'm the true branch, I'm, excuse me, if I'm the true vine, I'm telling you, the branch, I'm telling you, abide in me. So what Jesus is saying here is you have the opportunity to choose the true vine. And that's, there's good news in that, but there's bad news in that too. Because if you have the opportunity to choose the good vine, that means you also have the opportunity to what? To choose the bad vine and just read the book of Ecclesiastes uh, and you'll see in chapter one how easy it is to choose the to choose the bad vine. You can choose the vine of upward mobility. You can choose the vine of sexual pleasure. You can, you can choose the vine of kind of self-medicating. You can choose the vine of total financial security. You can choose the vine of power, the vine of education. These are, these are false vines in that none of these vines will ever enable us to live and fulfill the calling whereby God has created us to be certain people. We, we can do these things, no question. The question is, are you living the best life? And the best life is the life that God had in mind for you when God created you, and that is a life of fruitfulness, and that fruitfulness is contingent on you willfully attaching yourself continually to Christ as the true branch, you being the vine. And so you have to turn back again and again, identifying in your life the false vines, and then turning and uh, reattaching yourself to the true vine. All of us in the room have to do this over and over and over again. And listen, the false vines are not only, uh, you know, materialism, wealth, and pleasure stuff out there. Your church can be a false vine. 
And your religious system can be a false vine. And your brand of Christianity can be a false vine. And, and, and your certain doctrines can be a false vine. And your political affiliation can be a false vine. And even your mission to win the world can be a false vine. And it can look like good grapes, but none of them are the genuine uh, vine. The only true vine is Christ, period, right? Christ plus nothing. Uh, Rwanda is this beautiful example of a, uh, I mean, a tragic example, but perfect example of, of a bad vine. You go back in the early 90s and uh, you read, Rwanda was the stellar missionary success story in all of Africa. 95% conversion rate in Rwanda. And then suddenly in 1994, uh, there was a genocide and in 100 days, a million people were killed. Because though everyone, everyone, 95%, though people came to Christ, and people were worshiping, people were singing, what we had was uh, like a Jesus, a form of Jesus, but it was a Jesus without justice. And so what's bubbling under the surface, in spite of the fact that people are coming to Christ and getting baptized and singing and going to church, what's bubbling under the surface is tr- uh, uh, tribal hatred between uh, Tutsis and Hutus. And then, and then uh, when the Belgian colonizers left, the, the, the Hutus rose up and uh, decided we're going to kill all the Tutsis, all of them. And, and there's a million dead in 100 days in the most Christianized country in all of Africa. Like, we got to wake up and say, look, it's not enough to use Jesus' language and sing songs and read Bible verses if it doesn't actually transform our relationships with one another so the dividing walls are broken down, so that, so that racism is addressed, so that sexism is addressed, so that classism is addressed. If we're not actively reconciling, it's not the real gospel. So, so it becomes a false vine. And then there are false vines that are also all about justice and reconciliation. And Jesus has been virtually removed from the room. <laughs> and we think that, you know, we think that on our own, we can create a beautiful community. And the fruit of justice without Jesus is a million failed communes, right? I mean, come on, you're Californians. You know all about this. It's, it's, I mean, it's everywhere. It's like this great, you know, grand utopian experience. Here we are, we're just going to come out here and we're all going to live together and then boom, it implodes. There's a sexual scandal. There's a financial scandal. There's, a, there's whatever. It, all, it never works because you can want the very best, but you can't create the very best because you don't have it in you to be a reconciling person, even though you're all about reconciliation. So I need um, uh, Jesus and justice. I need justice and Jesus. The true vine is Christ, which encompasses all of that. Uh, So the reality is, we kind of come to this, the only person who can display Christ is Christ. None of us can do it on our own. We are like inadequate, right? And yet, Galatians 4.19, that's our calling. Paul says, it pleased God to reveal his son through me. So, like, if my calling is to reveal Christ, and then I'm honest enough to acknowledge my brokenness and go, wow, I can't reveal Christ, what do I do? Well, this is the good news, right? Remember what Jesus said in John 7? If anyone's thirsty, and I am, what do he say? Here's Jesus. He stands up in the temple. He says, if anyone's thirsty, don't come to me and drink. So if you're thirsty because you know that you're made for a life of fruit and you're unable to bear that fruit, I'm made for purity, lust is still in me. I'm made for generosity, greed is still in me. I'm made to be a person of hope, cynicism is still in me. I'm made to be a reconciling voice, I'm always arguing. Like I I want it, but I can't do it. Remember, that's Romans 7. So like if I'm trying and failing, trying and failing, if anyone's thirsty, what does Jesus say? Let him try harder? No. He says, come to me and drink. In other words, learn to partake of nothing less than the life of Christ. Because Jesus says, if you come to me and and learn to feast on me, then you begin to realize I'm actually living in you. And look, if you're thirsty, I won't just give you 16.9 fluid ounces. If you're thirsty and you come to me, here's Jesus, John 7, 37. From your belly will burst forth what? Rivers of living water. Don't you love the metaphor? I was thirsty, I came to Christ for 
16 ounces, and he turned me into a river. I mean, that's my story. I, I was lonely, depressed, anxious, and clueless when someone said, hey, make knowing God the number one goal in your life. And to this day, when I'm tired, discouraged, I go back to that, Jeremiah 9. Oh, that's right, knowing God. I have to turn back, I need to turn back to Christ, and every time I turn back, the river begins to flow. Do you see? So here's what God is saying. Christ is the vine, definite article. Christ is the true vine, the word aletheia, meaning the only one that works. Christ is the only vine that works. Don't kid yourself thinking that you'll ever find meaning anywhere else. Any other vine is idolatry. So kind of it all starts with identifying this. Christ is the source of all life and fruit. And this is why Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 11, uh, man, I'm concerned, says Paul, that in the same way that the serpent deceived Eve, your heart has been led astray from, I love this language, the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. Simplicity and purity, two great words. And I would say what characterizes the church in the 21st century rather than simplicity and purity is complex mixture. Simplicity and purity, that's it, it's Jesus. Oh, no, no, it's not Jesus, it's emergent Jesus. Or it's, it's a neo-Calvinist Jesus. Or it's Pentecostal Jesus. Or it's social justice Jesus. Or it's liberation theology Jesus. Or it's uh, prosperity theology Jesus. Or it's upwardly mobile Jesus. Or it's Republican Jesus. Or it's Democrat Jesus. Or it's, you know, socially aware Jesus. No, it's not. None of those Jesuses are Jesus. Jesus is kind of beyond every category. And so when we make our category our Jesus, our category becomes an idol, and not only is it no longer Christ, but we begin misrepresenting Jesus because we're calling things Jesus that aren't Jesus. So no single church, leader, organization is the vine. None. I can only find Christ in Christ. So that's kind of, we start there. And if that's, if that's true, then yes, we preach Christ, but we have to learn then that kind of receiving from Christ in a, in a relationship with Christ, an intimate relationship with Christ, is the foundation of my fruitfulness. It's not my vision casting ability or my fundraising development capacity or, or you know, my ability to make cool stuff or mobilize my team or break down silos. Where it all starts, where everything starts, is my relationship with Jesus. And I'm not asking you this evening, do you have your hand stamped so that you can say when you die, you're going to heaven? That's not the point. The, here's the point. This is what's on the table this evening. Is Jesus real enough to you that you would say this? Yeah, Jesus is my friend. Yeah, I talk to Jesus. You have this confidence that Christ lives in me. And because Christ lives in me, though I fail, I know that I have always at my disposal the source of nothing less than the resurrected Jesus who is infinitely, irrevocably, endlessly for me. <laughs> and all I need to do is turn back and I'm full again. I'm asking you, is that what you have? Because anything less is not the Christian life. It's religion, but intimacy is the foundation, right? I mean, who's married in the room? Let's raise our hands, we're married. So most, many of us are married. Single guys, listen up here. This is good information, right? Here's the deal. Like, when you're, when you're building a life with a spouse, I mean, I'm a pastor, and I tell you this, this happens all the time. One of the, one of the highest uh, periods of divorce rate for couples is between the 23rd and 27th year of marriage. Did you know that? One of the highest rates. It's early, like people divorce early because of the stuff I was sharing earlier, disillusionment. But then, you know, here's what happens. Kids come, and we spend, you know, 20 years on projects. And it's all, like from the outside, it's all legit. It's like, whoa, you got soccer for him, and, you know, cello for her, and flute for him, and wrestling for her, and we're going in all these directions, and then we gotta go to church, and they gotta get their Awana badges, and so we gotta do that too, and we gotta get them baptized, and we gotta get them to camp, and we're busy, and they're busy, and we're saving for the future, and we wanna move to Shaver Lake when we retire, so we bought a piece of property up there, and we gotta check that out, and then we gotta get county permits, and we gotta build stuff, and we're building, and we're planning, and we're raising, and we're 
you know, celebrating, and then the parents are getting old, and we got to care for them, and it just goes on and on and on and on and on. And then here, I know I'm a pastor. I tell you this, it happens all the time. People wake up when they're 55 and go, I don't even know who you are. But my secretary knows who I am. Thanks. I'm done. Like, what happened? They looked happy. In the same way the men in the room look Christian. But the point is not to look Christian, ever. The question on the table is this. Do I know my spouse and love her? And this evening, because we're the bride, we just reverse that. Do we know Jesus as our spouse and love him? Do we love him? So we do a thing, my wife and I, that's analogous to devotions. Uh, we, in the morning, uh, we, we, we get up in the morning and uh, my wife usually walks with the neighbors and I have my devotional time and then she comes back and then she makes a cup of tea and I have my third or fourth cup of coffee and, um, and then we, we'll go, uh, we have a hot tub and we go sit in our hot tub and then we'll, then we'll literally, we'll sit at the table and we'll pray, we'll pray for each other. What's your day looking like? What's a week looking like? How you doing? And uh, we just do that every day. Why? Well, it's, there's no rule, but this is how intimacy happens, right? Because if we, I know if we don't do that, projects are going to squeeze away intimacy. So that's, that's why we do it. And uh, I, would, I would challenge you guys to say your relationship with Christ is eternal, so it has value too. Pra- make a practice similar in that realm. I, when my wife's out walking with the neighbors, I literally am having coffee with God. Like it's a French press, and I pour it, and there, it's, I have a devotional that's emailed to me. I can't not see it. It's there. I read it. I write in my journal a little bit. I meditate on my identity in Christ. It's like, it's the same thing I do with my wife. And the reasons are the same in both cases. What's, what are the reasons? Oh, that's right, intimacy. Because if I don't take time to develop intimacy, intimacy doesn't just, no one's accidentally intimate. Do you understand? Like, and so there's intentionality. And this, this is all wrapped up in the word, what? Abide. It's all wrapped up in that word. Like Jesus says, I am the vine, now I'm inviting you. What's your part? You abide. So uh, tomorrow, you have some resources maybe that will help you develop just a few habits of intimacy with Jesus. Just a few. I, I can't encourage you enough to develop habits of intimacy with Jesus. And then I'm just going to say one thing about developing these habits now. Uh, whenever you develop a habit, it's best to start small rather than think big right? Uh, if you're going to develop a habit of intimacy and you're going to start reading the Bible, don't say, oh, uh, great, I'm going to read through the Bible this year. No one cares. Literally no one cares if you read through the Bible in a year. No one. <laughs> Especially God. I've, I would think God's a little disappointed because God's like this, really? You're going to speed read the Psalms, like six with your Cheerios? Don't do that. Just Open the Bible and read a few verses four times. And then write down what's meaningful to you, or if you have a question or whatever. And then even then, oh yeah, I'm starting small, just like with my wife and I. It's not like hours, it's 15 minutes. But even then, recognize that anything that's a habit isn't always rewarding. Right? Do you understand what I mean by that? No habit is uh, able to produce like a hit every time. I mean, if you're a runner in the room, you know this. People who don't run think every time you run, there's a runner's high. I ran today, there was no runner's high. It was a runner's low, right? It was 85, and I'm by, by now used to 40 degrees, and it was horrific. Whatever, you run anyway, it's fine. It'll be better tomorrow. Same thing with my wife, never. 
you know, we sit, and some of these mornings when we do our little time together for intimacy, sometimes it's funny and we end up laughing a lot. Sometimes we have a hard conversation. Sometimes uh, it's super encouraging. And here's the truth, sometimes boring. Boring. Especially because we uh, talk differently. I want to get to the point immediately. <laughs> and uh, uh, my wife is often a woman of few words. When she has a story to tell, it is not a few words. And so I'll be listening and like, yes, and where's this going? And, you know, and then, uh, and it's, but here's the thing. I've never, ever said, hey, that was boring today. So, um, <laughs> so here's the deal. Uh, we're going to meet again tomorrow, and uh, if it's boring tomorrow, that's two strikes. And then if it's boring a third time, you know what? We're done. We're done meeting. No, no. I don't do that with my spouse, but I do that with God, and I'll bet you do too. Where you, say, you, you leave here with intent. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm going to develop intimacy with Jesus. And then you get to Leviticus, and you're like, what the heck is this? And why is this happening? And who cares? And you're done. And I'm just going to say to you, keep showing up. Because when you show up, it's like drinking beet juice, man. Good things happen. God does the work, but you have to show up and bring your whole person to the table. So this is this, is this abiding thing. Christ is the vine that can lead you to the life for which you're created. So you should hook up. With Christ. Second principle then, fruitful branches are still subject to pruning. Okay? John 15. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Every branch in me that bears fruit, he prunes. A couple things here. First of all, you could be in Christ and not bearing fruit. It says it in the text. So you can know Christ, and many of us in the room do, but we're not bearing fruit. So, that's the motivation to abide <laughs> so that we can change the trajectory of our lives and begin to bear fruit. So you can be, be in Christ and not bear fruit, but even if you're bearing fruit, fruitful branches are still pruned. What does that mean? Well, I mean, you look through the scriptures, this is what you see. David is anointed as king, but then before he actually ascends to the throne, there's a, like a 15-year a period or something like that where Saul is still the king, and David's on the run and feigning insanity, and Saul's trying to kill him, and this is his pruning. You know, Paul be tries to begin a ministry in Jerusalem, and then he's run out of town, and he's a tent maker for, for 15 years, and this is his pruning. Joseph's in prison. This is his pruning. Jeremiah is, is uh, uh, left in Jerusalem when all of Israel's taken captive. That's his pruning. Ezekiel is taken away while Jeremiah stays being taken away and sitting by the river of Babylon and weeping and having a vision. That's Ezekiel's pruning. The thorn in the flesh is your, is your pruning, like this, that physical affliction that you have. Your failures are your pruning. Relocation is your pruning. Financial setbacks are your pruning. Stagnation in a relationship is your pruning. Broken relationship is your pruning. You're being pruned. And that's okay because the point of pruning is to bear fruit. And by the way, pruning and discipline and judgment in the Bible all have the same desired outcome. And the, same, the desired outcome in every case is your transformation. So like when bad things are happening, you don't have to try and figure out, is it, golly, is this judgment or discipline or, or pruning? I say to people, whatever, it's bad for you right now. That's it. But God is doing good things. So I just want to receive it and say, Lord, you know, I want you to do the work that you need to do in my life by this circumstance in which I find myself. This is my pruning. So fruitful branches are still subject to pruning. And then, finally, super liberating, you and I have an active verb that God gives us. And bearing fruit is not your active verb. So, uh, hear me again. Bearing fruit is not your active fruit. You are not responsible for your fruit. Isn't that awesome? No, no. You have one thing you're supposed to do. What's your active verb? Anybody? Abide. You abide. You abide. Christ bears fruit through you. 
But you, then, you need to abide. What does abide mean? Well, it's interesting. The word abide is, uh, uh, means to make your home there, okay? So uh, m- most of us, all of us, have phones. We all have some kind of picture on our phone. Uh, many of you probably have a picture. You, who has a picture they chose on their phone as their screen? Who just have whatever's there? Yeah. That's kind of this thing that we're talking about right now. Because uh, what Jesus is saying is, look, I want to be your homepage. That's, that's what Jesus is saying. I want to be your homepage. So that, you know, when you're not uh, watching the Huskies beat Stanford tonight and you're doing other things, right? <laughs> and when you're coming, like when you're done with whatever you're doing, who do you come home to? You, come, you don't come home to porn and ESPN and your fantasy league. You come home to Christ. That's abide. Come home to Christ. Develop intimacy with Jesus. And that requires of you, like, developing a few faith habits. And, and uh, so for, in my own life, I, look for, I try and look for Jesus every day, wherever Jesus can be found. And, and the good news is Jesus can be found a lot of places. So I'm looking for Jesus in the text, but I'm also looking for Jesus in creation, and I'm also looking for Jesus in, in fellowship, right? And so Christ is all over the place, and we're told to keep coming back again and again, coming back and back and back to Christ. This doesn't need to turn you into some kind of a religious zealot. In fact, far from it, I think, Many people who do this best practice what Jesus talks about, you know, praying in their closet. They're not, you know, loudly portraying Christ, but they're clearly portraying Christ. And many of you, I'm afraid, are, are fearful of becoming a zealot, and so you don't want to come home to Jesus. And I'm here to tell you, coming home to Jesus, far from being more religious makes you uh, more human, in the best sense of the word human. Like you become an image bearer of your creator. More joy, more eye contact, more generosity, more in tune with what's going on around you. Why? Because Christ is beginning to animate your very being. Why? Because you're abiding. And so now you're giving Jesus the freedom to be the living, uh, uh, the river of living water that he is and kind of burst forth. Uh, through you. So your active verb is abide. And then the beauty of this is, is, this is the beauty of abiding. Abiding leads to confidence. Abiding leads to confidence. Why? Because uh, there's a promise attached to abiding. If I do my part, which is abiding, just returning to my homepage of Jesus, then here's the promise. You will bear fruit. You'll bear fruit. This uh, was driven home to me years ago in a staff meeting at one of the Bible schools where I teach in Canada, where the director of the school was giving a little devotional, and he made a comment that um, I think for him was just a throwaway comment, but it has stuck with me so profoundly. This is what he said. He said, look, I was there teaching the first week of school, and he goes, uh, look, students are going to be coming this week, uh, this week, and we know, we know this. God is going to be changing their lives. We know this. And then somebody said, how, like, how do we know that? And this is what he said. He said, because if we're abiding in Christ, then the nature of Christ's life, Christ's life, Christ's life is reproductive. So Jesus produces fruit. That's what Jesus does. So if I'm abiding in Christ, then I can rest confidently in knowing that Jesus produces the fruit. That changed my world. Because then I was like this, you know, oh, I see. If I abide, then uh, it's not that I don't have to pay attention to the lack of parking at church anymore. I have to pay attention to that. But I will never kid myself into thinking that by adding parking, I'm going to change lives. It's not, that, it's not that I need to, you know, no longer pay attention to the sound system or the quality of the worship or any of that stuff. I mean, it all matters, 
but, or, or the quality of the preaching for that matter, but none of it produces fruit. Only Jesus produces fruit. So, if I, so my main responsibility then is to abide. Because if I abide, then I expect fruit. Oh, and if, oh, if there's fruit, we need more parking. <laughs> because God's going to be changing lives. Do you see? So, so we can expect fruit, but then the most liberating part of that is that the nature of the fruit and the scope of the fruit and the timing of the fruit are entirely God's prerogative, not mine. So I can expect fruit, but, but I, like I, I shouldn't be you know, continually you know, looking out on the edge of the branch to see at the fruit. I don't, I don't look at the branch, I look at the vine. Or excuse me, I don't look at the end of the vine, I look at the branch who's Jesus. Because I'm always looking here, I'm not looking here. And so I'm just looking at, I'm looking at Christ, confident that if I'm looking at Christ, good things are happening. Good things are happening in me, and good things are happening as a byproduct of, of the abiding. Because the abiding transforms me. This is the promise of 2 Corinthians 3, verses 16 to 18, where the Apostle Paul says this, we all with unveiled faces are beholding as, the, as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, and as we behold, that's our active verb, as we behold, we are being transformed from glory to glory to glory to glory, even as from the Lord. So my, again, my active verb, behold. My active verb, abide. When I abide and I behold, what happens? Good things. Like, I don't know when those good things are going to happen, but they're going to happen. I don't know how big they're going to be, but they're going to happen. Uh, we ran a retreat center for a number of years, and um, uh, m- m- I feel like my sweet spot is college students. We had a lot of university students from all over the world would come to our thing, and I would do teaching, and we'd go rock climbing and backpacking and stuff. But then... Uh, a college student who I'd taught called me and he said, hey, I want to bring some students down. And then we signed him up and it was all set up and we had the food and everything. And he only used this generic word student. And then like it's a week before the thing, he says, uh, yeah, oh, by the way, these are sixth to eighth graders. These are junior high kids. And I never, like I just, I would have said no. But it's too late. They're coming, you know. And he said, he'd already asked me, he said, uh, can, you teach, can you teach them Romans? Like, if you know your Bible, I mean, you know, like Romans is not like this lightweight thing or anything. There's no stories in Romans. It's, it's like, yeah, pretty tough stuff. So there's all these junior high students, and, and I'm teaching Romans. Well, okay, so, you know, we just do it. Th- what? Okay, this is on my plate. We'll just do it. So I do this Romans thing for the weekend, Kids are throwing stuff at each other and <laughs> sleeping and asking bad questions and I'm beating myself up over the whole thing and I'm like, like, what is this, you know? And then they leave and my son, who at the time was like 11, uh, he'd, he sat on the sessions and he helped me lead the hikes and stuff for these junior high kids. Uh, and so everybody leaves and then my, my son... Uh, I'm putting him to bed that night. He said, Dad, that was the best thing that I've ever heard. He said, uh, I want to follow Christ right now. What, is it, what does it take? He says, that Roman stuff, man. And I was like, oh, I get it. The 11-year-old at the, in the room, you know, receives Christ. The whole thing, I thought it was a disaster. But here's the thing. I'm not responsible for the fruit. I'm responsible to abide. And this is the beauty of it, you guys. When you abide, then you begin to see a little bit that life is like uh, you're just out sowing seeds, and you know some of the seed is going to fall in good soil. And good th- you know it. You just know it. And then life becomes kind of a joy, basically, right? So what we need to do is, 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 is learn to abide. And this is the last thing I'll say. Abiding means always turning from the wrong vine to the right vine. Because, because I'm attached to a vine, always. So I can't attach to this vine without releasing that vine. And this is, I mean, this becomes significant, right? I need, somebody in the room, 
You need to turn from the vine of worry. Because some of you are like, that's it for you. You're worried about money. You're worried about your kids. You're worried about relationship. Life feels out of control. You've got to turn from worry and abide. Some of you are living in fear. Fear of the future. Fear of finances. You've got to turn from fear, your, fear of health things. Turn from fear and abide. Some of you are anger. Turn from anger. Abide. Some of you are self-medicating. It could be alcohol. could be porn. could be fantasy sports. could be real sports. could be CrossFit. But you're hiding from intimate relationships in a world of your own making. You've got to turn from that and abide. So I would be remiss as your friend to just tell you to abide as if it was an add-on. It's never an add-on. I turn to Christ because I've turned from something, right? And so this is what I want to do, just for a minute. You may or may not be with people you know around you this, this evening, but um, I'm going to ask if John just come play a little minute, and I want you to just pray for like two minutes. What a, Jesus, what are you inviting me to turn from in order that I might abide more fully? And then just give that to the Lord and say, Lord, you know, I'm going to turn from fear to your courage. I want to turn from anxiety to your peace. I want to turn from self-medicating to finding comforting in you. I want to turn from this to that. Just take a couple minutes with the Lord and pray that through. And I'll join you in that prayer as John plays. Let's just pray together. Jesus, meet us now. Our desire is to be fruitful, but that begins with acknowledging that we're barren without you. That, that being cut off from the only branch that gives life, we're going to live lives of, of ultimately frustration, no matter how successfully they look outwardly or how spiritual they look. And so we're going to learn this evening, Father, uh, to say yes to your invitation toward intimacy by turning away from kind of these false lovers, things that have captured our hearts. Worry has captured our hearts. I know as I grow older, fear of the future has captured my heart. I know for many of us in the room, anger has captured our heart. We're so mad about our country, no matter what our politics. Pride has captured our hearts, some of us in the room. And we think we're okay, but at a deeper level, we know we're not. We need to, we need to turn. Self-medication has captured us, Father. In our pain, we've, we've gone down roads that we know are wrong. We want to turn. We want to turn to you, and we want to begin to enjoy in a new way in the year that is ahead, intimacy with the resurrected Jesus so that we can enjoy confidence and fruitfulness and intimacy with our divine creator. What a gift you've offered us, Jesus, to just be wrapped in your arms. May, may, may that be... May that be our story. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, guys. Blessings.